I'm Dr. Jay Anders, and this is Tell Me Where It Hurts, where we discuss some of the big challenges in health IT and how we can solve them so clinicians can do what they do best, care for patients. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of Tell Me Where It Hurts. Um, today's topic and guest is something that's very near and dear to me personally, both as a physician as well as a family member helping to take care of other family members. I'm gonna relate a little story uh, that has recently occurred where uh, a member of my family has a fairly significant medical condition who's been seen in ERs twice and been to primary care, specialist care, and is now headed towards super specialist care. Uh, one of the interesting conundrums that has occurred with all of this is getting that information transferred about her to the right place at the right time and going down this path. And as a, as a clinician who's dealt with this his entire lifetime in practice, it's, it doesn't seem like it's the right way we're doing things today. And we need to start empowering people to basically take control of themselves because that's what had to happen in this case where we became the, the repository of making sure that this piece of information is transmitted over there and it's correct and it's okay and all of the rest. So today's guest is an expert in this. I'd like to uh, welcome Grace Cordovano who uh, has a Biochemistry PhD, which I find fascinating, one of my favorite topics in graduate and medical school. But she is a patient care advocate. She has been nationally recognized, has worked with the ONC um, and several of the national agencies regarding this uh, before she started on a pathway of her own company. She co-founded Unblock Health, uh, which has dedicated itself to try to empower patients, empower caregivers, empower the clinicians who actually take care of folks as well. And I'd like to welcome Grace to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Jay, for having me. I'm so looking forward to today's conversation. So you made it to the national stage. You've worked with a lot of folks, um, the ONC and standards groups and HIMSS and all of that, but you started out as a biochemistry major yes, and have a PhD. So tell me a little bit about, and our listeners, about how you got from that into what you're doing now. I've been navigating U.S. healthcare since I was a kid. And just some background, I didn't speak English as a child. My family immigrated from Poland. And while I was born here, I didn't speak English. Once I got the hang of speaking English, um, probably around 10, I started navigating U.S. healthcare for family, friends, parishioners, neighbors, because there was no Google Translate and there were no translators. So I was using my encyclopedia and dictionary and trying to translate handwritten notes and what was on prescription bottles. And that was my introduction to patient advocacy. Uh, my first job out of uh, in high school was filing medical records. So I, as this teenager, got a $9 an hour job, which was a lot of money back then. And I 
quickly learned and received training on the sanctity of the information in those paper records that needed to be filed and the sense of urgency when people requested them and the anger that ensued when they didn't get them. And I worked filing records at a surgery center. So these were serious situations that I really didn't appreciate um, fully until probably most recently now. Um, I navigated a number of cancer diagnoses, and the one that really changed my life was when my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, and the oncologist told us there's no cure. Now, my family prized U.S. healthcare and innovation and always said that coming out from Poland, um, you know, U.S. healthcare was the best and, and the best in the world. So I looked at the doctors and I said, what do you mean there's no cure? This is America. Uh, that's what inspired me to go on to grad school. So my background is a PhD in biochemistry of metabolic disease with an emphasis on chemo prevention and understanding what happens in cancer metabolically and, and how do you derive uh, chemo prevention or cures. I landed with my own cancer diagnosis um, upon uh, graduating from and defending uh, my thesis. And it was a misdiagnosis that it took four months at Sloan Kettering. So I was diagnosed with advanced lymphoma. I knew enough to take a copy of my medical records and get a second opinion. Four months of tests, biopsies, blood work, every type of imaging, surgery, and being placed in isolation after surgery. Um, after three days of isolation, I was told it was a fungal infection I got on my honeymoon. I was diagnosed with histoplasmosis and which re required no cure uh, and no treatment, excuse me, just monitoring because a healthy immune system does clear that. When I was recovering from that, I read in the newspaper uh, article about patient advocacy as a profession, and it was as if all my stars aligned. And I was fully committed at that point, recognizing that with all the privileges that I had, had I not gotten that second opinion, my life would have been very different. So I took some business, took some finance, because they don't teach you that in grad school when you're, when you're in the sciences, and opened up my own practice called Enlightening Results, where I have the privilege of serving patients and their families as they navigate their diagnosis and the healthcare system. And I quickly learned I needed to brush up on policy, because you have to understand what your rights are. And I started seeing a lot of holes, and I started speaking and reaching out to people. And somehow I've gotten into standards and interoperability and all these things that I never thought I would, you know, walk down this path of, but I'm so blessed to have had these opportunities and uh, to continue to have opportunities to say yes to, to listen and learn and grow from. You know, I, that's interesting because it sounds like you and Mickey Tripathi are pretty much lockstep regarding interoperability <laughs> and what, need, what needs to happen. He's been on the podcast a couple of times talking about that. I'm a huge uh, fangirl of Mickey Tripathi. He's absolutely fabulous. Let's talk a little bit about technology because now we are pretty much at the end of rollout of electronic health records, which has not been the panacea we thought it would be when it starts or talks about exchanging information, how that really occurs in either real time or not real time or however. Um, but it's changed quite a bit in the last decade, 15 years. So when it comes to these records, tell me a little bit about the challenges you're seeing for patients right now and how they can be a part of this. I think right now I'm, I'm very appreciative of the progress that's been made. I've seen paper records and the, the manila folders with the three letters uh, you know, on the side, and now they're electronically available. I fully appreciate progress. 
I think the biggest challenge is, is now that we're celebrating, oh, look, you can see your records. Yay. That's not enough because patients have work that they need to do to get the care that they need. So I need more than that. So I, I don't want to be greedy and undermine all the progress we've made, but I want to move past access for the simple access sake and access for actions sake because no one's doing all of the work behind the scenes, which I call patient administrative burden, the work that needs to be done to get the care they need. When you get the insurance denial, when you have to file for social security disability benefits, when you have to go and collect your records and pathology slides and go get the images on CD, all of the work that families need to do, especially when you move into like a chronic illness, a life altering, life limiting situation, even in death and hospice, people still need access to information. And the electronic health record is not positioned for that. It's simply to see. Now we need those insights put together and it needs to be a source of information that can now allow individuals to make educated decisions about their care and coordination of care, especially when they hit a barrier. You know, interestingly, I've, I'm going to harken back to the days you mentioned it, Manila folders. Um, I'm from the big group practice world uh, in my practice lifetime. So we had a lot of Manila folders. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing that I found with colleagues, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about this maybe a little bit later, but it was when patients would actually request their records. First, there was barriers to that. Mm -hmm. You got to Xerox all this paper and here it goes. But when they had questions about that, the hackles of my colleagues, some of my colleagues went straight in the air where well, I don't have time to explain this to anybody. And what do you mean? You've got questions about what we've done and you don't understand this and you don't understand that. You know, it's, it's amazing how it seems that clinicians sometimes forget the fact of what they're doing and who they're doing it for. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, I'm hoping that has changed a little bit because of the transparency, because I think there's going to be questions. There's obviously people don't, they don't have a medical degree. They're not going to understand what's in their medical record mm -hmm. totally, mm -hmm. uh, or all the different pieces you need for X treatment, whatever that might be. So I understand that really totally. And I also told my friends or all my patients too, I said, if any physician does not give you your medical records or access to your medical records, you run like your hair's on fire <laughs> because that person is not somebody you need to see if they are reluctant to tell you information, that's not a person you want. Mm -hmm. Well, now you can also file an information blocking complaint or, or dig a little deeper into that. So maybe not run with your hair on fire, but also take your power back. I think we have a lot of opportunities about, I don't like being a victim and complaining, like, I can't get access to my records. Uh, this is so frustrating. You know, other industries provide so much information. The reality is, boots on the ground, no one is coming to save us. And the sooner patients and families recognize this and not take it as an insult or anger, you get an opportunity to take your power back. And I think from a health IT policy standpoint, with the information blocking rules, with the advent of technology and digital health, and now some open access AI tools that are coming into the forefront, we have an opportunity to level the playing field here. M my heart goes out to my colleagues in medicine because there's so many people that are taking time to go over these me messages that are uh, questions about medical records, and they're trying to take the time to review it. But the reality is they have a full schedule to 
also meet, they have patients they have to see. They're wasting time on prior authorizations and insurance denials and coordinating all of that nonsense. So somehow, I as a patient advocate have a very unique perspective because I have an opportunity to fill a very big void and gap and work in between this space to help patients and my colleagues in medicine sort of bridge these gaps in getting access to care, getting access to the information and navigating the barriers because it's the barriers piece also that causes a lot of friction and medical records are critical to helping people be able to navigate these barriers quickly. So we, you talked about this just a little bit, uh, 21st century cures. Now the information blocking rules have come out. Uh, we've got all this new value-based care going on mm-hmm. and there's been some issues with that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got all these uh, QHENs that are out there now being set up. So we've got these big repositories of things uh, to give patients access. So are they changing for the better? Are we on the right path with with all of this? Yes, I fully believe that we're on the right path. I do see progress. I've been doing this personally and professionally for 25 years, and I do see progress. And in not just progress, but the sentiment of the people that are at the national level, I can't sing the praises of the team at ONC and a number of other federal agencies they are committed to doing right by the patient. They're trying to remove friction. There's so many great people that are working hard to really move the needle and to drive meaningful change that's equitable. And they realize now that there's people's lives at stake. This is impacting grandmas, grandpas, wives, aunts, uncles, sisters, brothers, uh, children. So there's a human connection there that I think is distinctly unique and prominent where I didn't see that or it wasn't as prominent before. So that certainly does give me hope. And look, there's progress. I see it. I see uh, different levels of access that are happening um, in real time in the patient's portals that I I serve in my portals. Uh, Do we have work to do? Absolutely. we, We still have a lot of work to do. Um, and I think bringing the patient and care partner perspective and the caregiver and advocate perspective and expertise to the table is essential as we look towards the future. Now, you mentioned this. I wasn't going to bring it up, but you mentioned it anyway. So you talked about AI and how that's going to <laughs> impact. I mean, we, we have been inundated with now all these large language model AI platforms and how they're going to replace physicians and how they're going to be able to do this and they're going to be able to do that. So from the patient's perspective or the patient advocate perspective, how do you see that working into the milieu? Because I I mean, back in the old days of manila folders, I'll say that I've had patients that had a foot of medical records. So now we've got a foot of electronics, Mm -hmm. medical records, out there to go through. So give me a little bit of your perspective on that. I love all the AI stuff. I've been using ChatGPT since broken the end of November. I have full transparency. I'm, I have a subscription and I use it in my advocacy work daily and in my writing daily. I'm writing insurance appeal denial letters. I'm filing social security disability, um, medical necessity letters. I'm helping patients understand, uh, you know, what we not just their diagnosis, but what options may be available. I'm using it to translate in other languages and and comparing it against Google Translate. I'm excited by the advent of all of this. Sure, are there concerns? I mean, 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm being mindful of that. But there are definitely specific use cases for low-hanging fruit that can address patient administrative burden to give patients a leg up. So never before, from my perspective, have there been opportunities for actual tools that can give outputs that are open access that can benefit patients, consumers, and their families in real time at this moment. So I'm using BARD, I'm using ChatGPT, I'm using uh, DocsGPT, which, which is more clinically oriented. And I think it's fantastic. And again, I don't believe in fear-mongering and being a victim. I am disappointed to see schools shutting down access to this because I think instead of fearing it, this is our new reality and we need to learn to embrace it and learn where the strengths of the tools are at this moment while being cautious and continuing to learn what the limits are, but there's absolutely opportunity here. And I couldn't possibly emphasize that more. For advocates, I highly recommend and encourage using them and becoming familiar with them because it can help scale the number of patients we can help. Well, there's a whole host, I agree with, of administrative tasks that providers do, that patients have to do, um, that I think it would be greatly enhanced, it would greatly enhance that ability to do that. I mean, it's one of the, one of the bugaboos I had to do in my practice is to write these denial letter responses mm -hmm. and say, wait a minute, you got, forgot this, you forgot that the whole, the whole thing, which is time consuming. It's not patient care. And it really mm -hmm. deflects your, your mindset away from patient care, because this is just busy work to get mm -hmm. this all put together. Mm -hmm. So I am in full agreement. I think administrative tasks are marvelous use of some of these new technologies. Let's turn around and talk a little bit about Unblock Health. Sure. I, I, I looked at your website. I love what you're doing. It sounds very positive. So tell me a little bit about the purpose mm -hmm. and what your goals are there. Let me tell you a little bit about my advocacy work. And I would generalize this to any patient advocate or perhaps loved one who's navigating a diagnosis for a patient. The central source of truth is the medical record. Aggregating that medical record can take quite a number of hours. On average, from my experience, when I work with patients, it can take 40 to 60 hours to aggregate a individual's medical records. So they're uh, their cancer diagnosis, their imaging, their pathology from numerous organizations, providers, that information needs to be collected in order to schedule the first appointment with a specialist. They want to see that information. 40 to 60 hours in aggregating is unsustainable. And I think the definition of insanity. Unblock Health has been created. It's a SAS to streamline the entire process. No more papers, no more scanning, no more faxing. I have digitized the entire process from a patient, advocate, and health information management perspective. All of the authorizations that are needed are electronically implemented and able to be signed. There's tracking, something that we don't have. So every move that's made in the platform between the submitter or the requester and the receiver is tracked. There's an asynchronous messaging functionality. So if I say, hey, did you get my request? Uh, do you have all the information? I can simply send a text while I'm at a traffic light and wait for a response. I don't have to pick up a phone and leave a voice message at numerous extensions. I've simplified 25 years of blood, sweat, and literal tears and sitting in patient hell 
to make a tool that's going to make it easier. And I'm dedicating it to every person that told me my work is not scalable because this is the solution of patient access for the future. And another feature that I really love about it is when the request is not fulfilled, I can, with the patient's permission, download the entire report and all of the activity and submit it to the information blocking portal and submit an information blocking complaint. Because while there is a complaint process, if you didn't know to keep track of all of the activity and calls and faxes and visits and requests that were sent, you have to now start over from scratch to try to compile that to present your case. We also want to be able to celebrate institutions and providers that do fill it. I see people who fill records instantaneously. That should be celebrated. And we're looking forward to celebrating that as well. So you, that's a very, I, I think that's a great goal and it's a great system to have. Do you have providers of healthcare also looking at this kind of thing? Because if you correlate all the medical records, I'm a primary care physician, I'm an internist. So one of the things I absolutely craved was getting a full picture of somebody's health, mm-hmm. which could be scattered everywhere. So do you have providers actually getting that information to help with their patients, see where they are in this process? Say they're on multiple specialties. My mother mm-hmm. was that way, uh, trying to get a full picture. You know, I love this question and it absolutely could be an asset to providers because from our research, providers really have no way of documenting how many times they've requested, who they spoke to, if they got the records, is someone doing information blocking? There's requests that are left unfulfilled and it's often not documented in the record. Our current model is going through patient advocates first and patients and health information management, but providers, anyone who needs access that doesn't have time for this level of administrative burden, it's an absolute asset to because it can help with coordinating care, getting the records and also onboarding patients faster. I I just think it would be a marvelous tool because some of the things we do in the company I work for is is that kind of organization of, of data that physicians really have a hard time doing. Let's talk a little bit about your automatic or reporting to the ONC for information blocking. Because I read the rules and they're draconian. The The penalty for this is not slight. Um, so tell me a little bit about that and how when people are, your patient advocates are actually interfacing with your system, how that works. Mm-hmm. There is a information blocking portal that can be used to report instances of information blocking. We have an option to use that, but the challenge that I'm, that I'm emphasizing is when I submit or want to submit a complaint or a person wants to submit a complaint, there's information there that you may not have been keeping track of. And a lot of these requests are quite lengthy, and there's often dozens of phone calls, dozens of faxes, dozens of messages in a portal that you would never think to make a note of. But for the person that may be reviewing a complaint, it's essential that they have all this information to see, is this causing harm? How many times did this person have to request this information? Who did they speak to? Is this a new complaint? Has this been going on for six months? So from my experience, I wanted to create something that helps really reduce friction for everyone, not just for the person requesting, not just for the person that's fulfilling, but now also the person that may be reviewing a potential information blocking complaint, because I want to give them all of the information with a bow on it. 
as technology has has expanded, increased in functionality, um, do you think that systems should be even smarter than they are today and how they engage patients both in the exam room and outside the exam room? Because a lot of healthcare occurs outside of (laughs) me sitting in front of a patient. There's a lot of it. So we've got some advances. So talk a little bit about where you think the, the smarts in our EMR system should go. I'm going to look through the lens of someone that has multiple comorbidities and and a life-altering, life-limiting condition like cancer. The care partner or the caregiver at home is often doing the crux of the work and is willing to catch a grenade for a patient, and they desperately want access to information. And I'm preaching to the choir that when you have a diagnosis such as this, the rest of your life continues. You still may have work. You may have multiple jobs. You may have children. You may be caring for your own health condition, uh, aging parents. The stresses of the outside world don't stop. So I, as someone who cares for two disabled adults, I'm the primary care partner of two disabled adults. I have two children and I have my regular advocacy work. Where the smarts come in is I want to make sure that I can understand the cadence of my loved one's health condition. And it's really treatment-related side effects. How are we managing them? How are we managing the day-to-day of uh, how a person is feeling with new medications? How are they managing even from a, a, a temperature and vitals and blood pressure and weight I can't keep calling and keeping a pulse on all of those things, but if I had some sort of reporting or something, a dashboard that I could look at, gosh, what I would do to invest in something like that, because it's it removes friction and it provides continuity. And one of the most common things that I see is patients and their families want access to smart tools. They want access to some sort of dashboard that can help them keep track of all of these important metrics, because this is not a technology problem. We have amazing innovations. It's just not reimbursed. It's not something that can be prescribed. There isn't a digital health tool that, that can be recommended, or the physicians don't know about it, or there's just not enough data to to warrant it being a standard of care where uh, an insurer may may cover it. So those barriers are extremely frustrating. Um, Where I see an opportunity for smart tools, I'll give you another example, and this may be somewhat unique to oncology. Um, Many patients have their local community oncology center, and then they go to a center of excellence, which may be across state lines. During COVID, we saw a lot of red tape cut where telemedicine could happen anywhere. That rollback of where patients living with cancer were able to participate in telemedicine. So I'm in New Jersey, and I see this quite frequently with the patients that go to New York. Those ties were cut, and that access is now denied. So patients can no longer take a palliative care consult with their uh, palliative care doctor in New York because of the state-to-state barrier. If I had something that monitored the treatment related side effects for vomiting, for dehydration, for 
any of the spectrum of treatment-related side effects, that would potentially bridge that gap. So not only do I not have access to telemedicine, I also don't have access to the tools and technology that I need to care for myself at home or my loved one at home. And then when I go to the emergency room, I'm shamed for being non-compliant for taking my medication. I'm, I'm treated as if I'm stupid and illiterate, that I can't speak for myself. I don't have access to the records that I need to relay what's going on. And then I'm hit with an exorbitant bill because likely I've been sent to a hospital that's out of network. So now I come home with a hefty bill. It's This is just a regular patient that I serve daily. This is uh, status quo in my world and it's not okay. I would absolutely agree. It's not okay. That's absolutely. So is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about patient advocacy and where it's going and any other things you want to talk about that? A lot of people reach out to me and colleagues, professionals, where can I, I have this person and they don't know what to do now, what to do next. I highly encourage everyone to take a look at even Umbra Health. My colleagues uh, uh, have Umbra Health Advocacy. There's Advo Connection and there's Patient Advocate Foundation. Those are all great starting points if you're looking for a patient advocate or someone to help support you or a loved one uh, through either a difficult time with a diagnosis or a barrier like a medical bill or an insurance denial. So we're getting close to the end of our time here. Um, I asked this question of everyone I interview. If you had a magic wand and could pick one thing to change in your world of what you do, what would it be? In my world, if I could wave a magic wand, I would make sure that any patient could be connected to the information, tools, and technology they need to make an informed decision about their care. What a great response. So if people want to get in touch with you to learn about patient advocacy or what you're doing or Unblock Health, how would they do that? You can find me, you can go to the Unblock Health website. I also have my practice Enlightening Results. You can check out my site there. You can follow me on Twitter at Grace Cordovano and you can search my name. You can, if there's a will, there's a way to find me. I'm pretty open and honest out there. Very good. Grace, this has been a fabulous conversation. I really have enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Tell Me Where It Hurts. Tune in to Healthcare Now Radio and Podcast Network each month for the latest episode. To learn more about Medicomp Systems, visit our website at www.medicomp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MedicompSys or myself at MedicompDoc, or check out the show notes for links. See you next time.